have your phones on you? Oh my gosh. Is it the snow that's making you sad? It is, isn't it? How many of you went to bed last night and you knew it was gonna snow? Raise your hand. How many of you are like me and you went to bed last night and you did not know that it was going to snow and you woke up this morning angry at God? <laughs> oh God, no, no, the ground dog and the thing and they said it was gonna be spring. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna try this again. <clears throat> Do you have your phones on you? Okay, pull out your phone, please. Get it, get it, get it, get it. Make sure it's off. It's a good start. How many of you keep your entire schedule in your phone? Raise your hand. And it's like your whole life. Yeah, yeah. How many of you are, uh, how many of you still use a day planner? We have an elder that uses a day planner in his 30s. <laughs> My dad always used to tell me, if you're doing so much in a day, you can't write it all on your hand, then you need to do a little less. Um, so if you're a write it on your hand type of person, that's cool. I need you to make an appointment for me for 60 seconds, 60 seconds of your time on Wednesday at 3 p.m. Did you do that? I'll tell you what it is here in a minute. We're all, as a whole church body, we're gonna do something on Wednesday at 3 p.m. So I need you to make an appointment for me. Once you have that appointment in your calendar, some of you I can see you're actually, thanks Dave, some of you I can see you're actually looking at your kids going, do you know how to work my phone? <laughs> they probably do. But Wednesday at 3 p.m., I need you to make an appointment. Once you've got that done, shoot your hand up so I know everybody's got it done. Good, good. Still asking your kids to work your phone for you, that's fine. Okay, while you're finishing that up, let's pray. God, thanks for your goodness to us as we just sang about. Thank you for your grace, for your presence here with us. And we are so, so grateful to have the opportunity just to pause today and make much of you with other people in this room that, that we may not even know, but God, every person that comes here is a somebody made in your image, valuable to you and valuable to this community. So we come with, with grateful hearts. Teach us today, Spirit of God, instruct us and draw us to yourself in the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. When we uh, read spiritual texts in general, and also when we read the Bible specifically, we tend to jump too quickly to this question right here. What does it mean? What does the Bible mean? What does it mean to me? What is this, what's going on in my life? What is, how is this relevant to me in my life? What does it mean? And that is a good question. We do need to get there, but we can't get to this question, what does it mean, before we answer this question. What does it say? What does it say? Everybody say that with me. What does it say? Turn and tell your neighbor, say, I knew that before he put it up on the screen. I knew that. I knew that's the right question to ask. What does the scripture say? Here, here's the difference. Instead of reading the Bible and saying, what does this mean to me and my life and how it's relevant right now and my work and my family and my career and my internal life and whatever, we have to just simply ask ourselves and ask the text, what does it say? Just what does it say? And, and that 
question and, and, and the order of those questions because what does it say is the first question. What does it mean is the second question. Becomes really critical at this juncture in our study in the Gospel of John. What we have just done is finished John chapter 17. He's got 21 total chapters in his biography of the life of Jesus. We just got through chapter 17. And he's going to turn a corner into John chapter what? 18. Yeah, it's very good, isn't it? Rich, theologically rich. 18 comes after 17, exactly. <clears throat> and, and, and here's what John wants us to know in John chapters 17, or 18 and 19 in particular. John wants us to know what happened. It's very interesting to me because throughout John's gospel, he's got a very poetic voice. You might recall verses like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, it's very poetic, almost flowery in his language. It's moving. It's lyrical. John wrote this gospel late in his life, so he really knew by this point, what does it mean? He knew that. What do these events mean? What does Jesus mean for me? He knew that. But it's almost as if his voice begins to shift, drastically even so in some ways, in John chapter 18, because it's almost like he just becomes a reporter that's telling us facts just about what happened. And namely, what he's going to tell us about is the death of Jesus and the events surrounding uh, that moment 2,000 years ago where the Roman uh, government and the religious leaders conspired against Jesus because of their jealousy and greed and anger and hate to lynch him and uh, unlawfully convict him and put him to death. So in John chapter 18 and 19, we're going to talk specifically about what happened because that's what John really wants us to know. And below that layer of what happened... There is this what does that mean question. John will answer that. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks, especially as we approach Good Friday and Easter and prepare our own hearts for that. But today we're going to talk about what happened. And we're going to talk about what happened in kind of four different movements because really that's what John does and the authors of the synoptic gospels. And by the synoptic gospels, I mean the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when we put those together and when we pull in science, which we will do today, when we pull in medicine, which we will do today, when we pull in extra biblical texts and other history other than the Bible. We'll pull in all of that. And today, I really want us to understand that really 24-hour period following the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and what happened when Jesus of Nazareth was murdered. John begins with the betrayal Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples have left the upper room uh, where they had celebrated Passover. And when he had spoken these words, these messages, these last words to his disciples, along with this high priestly prayer, uh, they went out across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So they left the upper room in Jerusalem, exited the city proper, and went north 
to the northeastern side of Jerusalem on the outside of the city to what amounts to a public park called Gethsemane. You can still visit that place today. They, were, they frequented the Garden of Gethsemane. They would hang and talk and just be together, these friends. Thirteen of them before this moment, but in this moment there were 12 because Judas has left the Passover meal because he sees an opportunity to betray his friend and savior for 30 pieces of silver. What he does is he leaves the Passover meal with, uh, just before the disciples and Jesus do, and he goes to find the Jewish authorities, religious leaders, and the Roman guards, and say to them, Jesus' death is imminent, and he's talking about it a lot, number one. Number two, he's about to be, I believe, in a very, very private place that he goes to often, called the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you desire to arrest him and put him to death, now's the time to do it. So the Jewish religious leaders and also the Roman authorities scramble together and they go with Judas with lights and swords into this garden. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek and betrays him into the hands of sinners. And following that moment, uh, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So I want you to know what's happening. Two different groups of people there, the band of soldiers and their captain, and also the officers of the Jews. So understand, these band of soldiers and their captain, those are Roman guards, Roman centurions. Can you picture those people in your head with the big shield and the sword and the helmet and like the, the thing with the leather straps that look like a skirt? You know, if you ever meet a Roman warrior, don't say that looks like a skirt. Don't, bad idea, okay? And the officers of the Jews, because in this particular time and place, the nation of Israel was kind of a sub-nation underneath the Roman Empire. So they kind of had their own police and their own laws and their own court systems and things. So also, these temple guards came together. That is to say, if you are going to arrest God, you better bring an army. And instead of fighting back, Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. And he allows himself to be arrested. And the first thing that they do is they bring him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. The high priest was kind of the big dog in first century Jewish religious culture. He was kind of the overseer of this group of folks called the Sanhedrin. We'll get to the Sanhedrin in a minute. But if you were a serving high priest or if you had previously served as a high priest, they always call you high priest. So you may know this in the United States, people who have served as president in the past, Gerald Ford and Barack Obama and others that are still living, they are still addressed as Mr. President even though they are no longer serving as president. So they led him to Annas, who had once served as high priest, but no longer the acting high priest. Caiaphas is now the acting high priest. I wanna ask you a couple of trivia questions. They are not complicated, and they are not trick questions. Where did they take Jesus? They led him to whom? I want you to say that again. It's very, very critical. They led him to whom? Annas, and who was the high priest that year? Caiaphas. Who was the high priest that year? 
Okay, so the first thing that happens is the Roman authorities and the religious soldiers arrest Jesus and they put him on a religious trial. They bring him to the high priest. And what John tells us is now the high priest began to question him, next slide, about his disciples and his teaching. What they're trying to do is ferret out something from him that may reveal that he needs to be put to death. That's what they're trying to do. But it's interesting because they led him to whom? Annas. Say it again. They led him to whom? Annas. So is Annas the high priest? No, Caiaphas is the high priest. The very first thing that these religious leaders do is illegal. Under Jewish law, they bring a blasphemer or a potential blasphemer, someone who's accused, to the high priest. And the first thing that the high priest does is assemble the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this religious kind of court of law made up of three subgroups of 23 men each. Those three subgroups were the elders, the priests, and the scribes. You may have seen those described in the New Testament. That's a total of 69. Then there were two more that were overseers, the high priest and one more. And the very first overseer of the Sanhedrin was a man named Moses. You may have heard of that guy. Pretty famous, okay? And so what the law stipulates is that if someone is being accused of a religious crime, you bring them first to the high priest, then the high priest assembles the entire Sanhedrin, then you can put them on trial. But that is not what they do. Why? Because they know full well they do not have a leg to stand on. In the southern United States, uh, in the 1950s for sure, and even prior to that, uh, following the Civil War, uh, what would happen is these things called lynchings, where people who had my color of skin would arrest people unjustly, people who, were, who had my daughter and my son's color of skin, and accuse them of crimes that they did not commit, and not take them to the actual court of law and execute them. This is what is happening. This is an illegal trial, and I'm gonna show you several other ways in which the high priest and religious leaders break the law throughout this entire process because they have no leg to stand on when it comes to accusing Jesus. Annas, who is not the high priest, not who they are supposed to take him to, begins to question Jesus. He should not have, but he does. And interestingly enough, Jesus answered him. He says, I've spoken to the world, I've always taught in synagogues, etc., etc., etc. What's fascinating here is that Jesus actually answered him. Now, the law of the Sanhedrin, the Torah, the Mishnah, and the Talmud uh, that governed the religious authorities and the first century uh, uh, Jewish kind of interactions with people, it was very, very, very detailed, especially when it comes to putting people on trial. There was just this, I mean, it was crazy crazy in terms of the detail. I mean, it was a very sophisticated court system. For example, if you were tried before the Sanhedrin and all 71 of the Sanhedrin said you're guilty, they would let you go free. You know why? Because they would assume that justice wasn't being done. Of 71 people, nobody said not guilty. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying that's a sophisticated court system. 
They also had what's called the Fifth Amendment in the United States. You did not have to incriminate yourself. If you're put on trial, you don't have to speak for yourself. You don't have to answer any questions. Witnesses had to come, and their stories had to corroborate exactly. You may recall Jesus earlier in the book of John saying, I witness about myself, the Spirit witnesses about me, and the Father witnesses about me. You remember that? Because he wanted to call upon three witnesses. That's what he needed to have in order for him to be proven the Son of God. So in this particular case, what they need is witnesses whose stories corroborate. There's an example, actually, in an extra-biblical text of a woman named Susanna who was caught in the act of adultery. Multiple witnesses came before the Sanhedrin and said, we all saw it. But Susanna was allowed to go free because the multiple witnesses could not agree on what type of tree she was under when they found her. Jesus knows that he has this right. He does not have to speak for himself, but he does. But watch what Jesus does. I think this answer is very, very fascinating. Instead of saying, I didn't do this, I didn't say this, you guys are crazy, this is illegal, whatever, what what does he say? I've spoken openly to the world, I've always taught in the synagogue, I've done nothing in secret, so just ask those who have heard me. Jesus knows his rights. He knows that they need witnesses that they do not have. He says, why don't you just call upon witnesses? And when Jesus said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hands. See, it starts to get physical. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, watch. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I'm saying is wrong, just call the witnesses that you know you need to call according to the law. Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now, Annas starts to panic. Why? Because he knows the man he's dealing with is smarter than he is. And the man he's dealing with knows the law better than even he does. And he knows that he is doing something illegal right here, right now. And so when Annas panics, the very first thing he does is say, take this man to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas hits the oh darn it button. It says, get him to Caiaphas. Now, John's uh, account stops here, and it will pick back up when we see Jesus before Pontius Pilate. But the authors of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of fill in the gaps for us. And Matthew says this, now the chief priest and the whole council, now the rightful and serving chief priest, Caiaphas, and the whole council of the Sanhedrin, 71 of them, are together in Caiaphas' residence, and they are seeking false testimony against Jesus. They, they might put him to death, but they found none, though many witnesses came forward. Witness after witness after witness, and they're going, stories don't corroborate. We were there. No, nobody can prove that he's done anything wrong. Why? Because he hasn't done anything wrong. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now watch how smart Jesus is. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Like, you know, tell us if you're the Son of God. They know this is how, Jesus knows this is how they want to hang him for blasphemy. So tell us if you're the Son of God. He could have said, I'm the Son of God. And they would have accused him of blasphemy and they would have tried him and convicted him and put him to death. 
they would have been wrong. He was not blaspheming because indeed he was the son of God. But instead of responding with, I'm the son of God, he said, I didn't say it, you did. Not with that amount of sass. <laughs> Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming from the clouds of heaven. This does not elicit a very positive reaction from the high priest. So the high priest then tore his robes illegal, breaking a very clear, very direct Old Testament commandment. It's, it's as if their anger and their greed for power and their jealousy of Jesus have completely taken them over. And they haven't even just eschewed reason, but they've jettisoned completely the objective standard of God's word that they say they're so passionate about. They just toss it completely out the window. He knows what he's doing is illegal, but he does it anyway. And says he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard blasphemy. What's your judgment? The crowd says he deserves death. I've asked myself this question multiple times and have asked this text this question. Is there anyone of the 71, the Sanhedrin, that's smart enough? I'm not even looking for tenderness here. I'm just looking for smart enough to stand up for Jesus. There are two. Let's meet the first one. A man named Joseph of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. We'll see Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus breathes his last. There was one more, and I'll remind you of him in a minute, that spoke out against the judgment of the Sanhedrin. Again, the high priest tore his robes, and the crowd answered, he deserves death. This is what they've wanted to do all along, is execute him. And now the physicality of this trial begins to increase and increase and increase and build upon itself. It's the wee hours of the morning. Remember, because the night before they celebrated a Passover meal together after sundown, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested at about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and they begin to journey from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house, and it's beginning closer and closer to sunlight, and they want to put him to death, and then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, striking, in the original language, they want to do violence and harm him physically. Slapping him is they want to do harm and violence emotionally. They're mocking him, saying, prophesy, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They do have a problem now, however, because under Roman rule and being a sub-nation of the Roman Empire, they are not allowed to put anyone to death. That's against the law for the Sanhedrin to do. So the next thing that they need to do is a Roman trial, a government trial, and so the Roman government and empire could say, go ahead and put him to death. So after he goes from the kind of high priest's house to the actual high priest's house, and they can't convict him, and every 
everybody in the place is doing something illegal except for Jesus, they decide, all right, now let's take him to the house of, uh, from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That governor is a man named Pontius Pilate. You may have heard of him before. It was early morning by this time. You're talking about just about sunrise. Jesus has not slept in about 24 hours, and he's beginning to be beaten. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. Now, I want you to stop right there because it's really critical. Some people may open the text and say, look, they just celebrated the Passover Thursday night, didn't they? Just the night before, they celebrated the Passover. So see, that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their stories don't corroborate. They're in conflict. They cancel one another out because now it's the following day. They choose not to enter the governor's headquarters because if they enter the governor's headquarters, it would defile them and prevent them from eating the Passover, which they already ate. So which one is it? So I want you to know that the story that the gospel writers tell about the life Ministry, teaching, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus always matches up. Here's why. Because Passover had two meanings. One is Passover proper. That happened on one day. The second is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows Passover for a week. And so, yes, they had already celebrated Passover proper the night before, but they choose not to enter the government governor's headquarters because they still had a week of religious meals, celebrations, prayers, corporate worship services to do. Yes, they had celebrated Passover, but Passover week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was still coming, and they choose not to enter the governor's house in order to not defile themselves. Do you see how the stories match up? You tracking with me? Okay. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Like, what has he done? And they answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Does that work now? So-and-so is on trial. Well, are they guilty or innocent? Well, if they weren't guilty, they wouldn't be here. They have absolutely no leg to stand on. So Pilate, wanting to absolve himself of responsibility, knowing full well that they have no leg to stand on, says to them, watch, take them yourselves and judge them by your own law. I don't want anything to do with this because clearly this is not good. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We need you. And so Pilate begins to experience this unique, and I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway because I think Pilate, Pilate was a monster. Historically speaking, Pilate was a monster but I do actually feel for Pilate in this moment because he's under so much pressure. He doesn't know what to do. He has an angry mob who wants to crucify this man. He knows that it's illegal. He's in a pickle. And finally, and here's where I don't have a lot of grace for Pilate or sympathy, I guess, is he gives in. And he quite literally, you may have heard this before, washes his hands and says, I wash myself of any responsibility. I've absolved myself of responsibility. You do what you won't do. But I don't have any part with this. So instead of coming to the defense of an innocent man, he says, 
look, here's the deal. According to your tradition, the Roman government releases one man a year, one Jew to you, one man, so that he can go free. And the religious leaders respond, give us Barabbas. And Pilate goes, Barabbas is a bad dude. Like, he's a thief. Like, he's a bad. They say, we want him to go free. Well, what do you want to do with this Jesus then? And the crowd begins to scream, crucify him, crucify him. So now we've seen Jesus betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've seen him on a fake religious trial. We've seen him in an illegal government trial. And now he's turned over to the hands of sinners to be crucified. And so this is how the crucifixion goes down. John tells us that the first thing Pilate did was took him and had him flogged. What would have happened is that Jesus would have been stripped probably naked. His hands would have been bound and they would have been tied to a pole like this so as to expose everything here and all of his back. And they would have taken a whip called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails. It looks like this. It's got a wooden handle, leather straps, leather at the end, and they took bone and metal fragments and jammed them in to these little balls at the end of the cat of nine tails, hence nine leather straps. A popular kind of wisdom at the time said, no one can endure 40 lashes. You can't be beaten 40 times with this thing and survive. And so likely they would have been beaten Jesus 40 lashes minus one, as Paul would say, 39 times. And what happens is, as this Roman centurion, who were the most trained and prolific assassins of the time, and probably even to this day, would rival any in all of human history, would have taken this cat of nine tails and whipped Jesus so that the leather straps would wrap around and grab him in the front and those fragments of bone and metal and glass and whatever would dig into his skin and begin to tear away such that probably his internal organs and bowels would have been exposed. So after he's whipped and beaten, the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This is really not about violence to his physical self. This is about violence to his spiritual and emotional self. They're mocking him. Pilate John says, so he delivered Jesus to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and went out. Jesus was bearing his own Christ cross. Could you imagine how humiliating this must be, knowing full well, this is my death day, and I have been forced to build my own gallows. I have been forced to clean the gun with which they are going to shoot me. I am being forced to carry the cross from Jerusalem outside of the city gates to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull where they would execute criminals. Now on the way, uh, John doesn't tell us this, but the synoptic 
uh, authors do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus fainted and fell and was unable to continue carrying his own cross to the place of the skull. So they recruited a passerby, a man named Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross the rest of the way. Listen really carefully. Jesus passes out. He passes out. That's gonna become very critical information here in a minute. He passes out. They lead him out to the place of the skull called Golgotha. They would have laid the cross beam down. They would have hammered likely his wrists into the cross beam and his feet. You may have heard his hands before, but the hands are typically not able to bear the weight of the body. So when Jesus would have fallen, his hands would have ripped open. And so they nailed him through his wrists and maybe even tied him. You may have seen movies where people who have been crucified are elevated above the ground 9, 10, 11 feet, and so they are not reachable by those on the ground. But Jesus' feet were probably about thigh high, according to history. And so those who had gathered, both his executioners and his mom and his best friend, John, were able to have cognitive conversations with him as he hung, bleeding out, waiting for his death. Conversations like, Mom, I'm not gonna be able to take care of you anymore. So, John, I need you to do it. By this time, Jesus is in total and complete agony. I wonder, this is just me, if he recalls the prayer he prayed about 15 hours before. Oh, Father, if there's any other way, save me from this hour. Should I pray that? No, Father, because by this or for this very reason, I have come to this hour. So, Father, glorify thy name. Could you imagine? Jesus hadn't slept in probably 36 hours, give or take. He's been beaten. He's now hanging and bleeding out on a cross, and it's time for him to die. And so the final movement that John explains to us is the death. Again, it's like he's a reporter here. It's like he's a scientist. His John's voice has shifted. He's just reporting facts. He's not telling us why they happened or what they mean. He's just telling us what happened. And he says, after all of what happened, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. Now, it's funny because you might read that if you've ever read the accounts of the crucifixion and Jesus got thirsty. Okay, Jesus got thirsty and they put a sponge on a stick and they lifted it up to his mouth so he could have a little bit of sour wine to kind of take the dryness out of his mouth. But there's more happening here. 
Because when people are under such stress as Jesus was, things begin to happen with their physical body. Namely, if you are under such stress and such anxiety and your heart rate begins to increase and your anxiety goes through the roof, the teeny tiny little blood vessels in your fingers and in your nose called capillaries begin to burst. And the blood that's leaked out from those capillaries leaks into your sweat. And so when you sweat, you quite literally sweat blood. See, the stress that Jesus was under as he prepared for this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane caused his capillaries to burst, likely. And so when John says he sweat as if there were drops of blood, no, he sweat blood. It's what happens, medically speaking. There's also this thing called hypovolemic shock that happens, medically speaking. You might have heard that before. And some of the symptoms, too, in fact, of hypovolemic shock are passing out and being really thirsty. Jesus carried his own cross to a place called Golgotha and on the way passed out. And once he was hanging there, became really thirsty. His body is going into hypovolemic shock. His heart rate is increased and it becomes what's called pericardial effusion where a fluid begins to build up around your heart and lungs because your body is under such stress. That will become critical information here in a moment. Jesus, after saying, I thirst, they gave him sour wine and he said, it is finished. In the original language, Greek, it's tetelestai. It was a legal term, a financial term, paid in full. It's over, it's done. The promise has been made. I came to do what, or I, I, I have done what I came to do. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. One of the Roman soldiers, again, these uh, prolific executioners, wanted to make sure that he was dead. So he took his sword and pierced Jesus' side with a spear. Now, I often think when they pierced his side with a spear, like these are my sides, like that's what they're piercing with a spear. But this is my side too. So what a Roman centurion did was he took his sword, being about that long, and stabbed Jesus through the side and penetrated into his heart. And what happened at that moment is that what? Blood and water flowed out of his side. Why? Hypovolemic shock. Pericardial effusion. Now, John's just reporting to us what happened, but now, 2,000 years later, we know why. John would have had no idea. Why would you write that? John's like, blood and water flowed out of his side. I don't know, but that's what happened. But now we know that fluid had built up around Jesus' heart because of increased heart rate. He was pierced through the heart. Blood and water flowed out, and they knew he was dead. They wanted to get his burial done expeditiously because this was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. It was a Friday. And so when sundown came, if they hadn't finished, they would have had to let Jesus' body sit for another 36 hours before they could do work again following the Sabbath and complete the burial. And so the next thing that happens is the burial of Jesus. One man who we have already talked about, a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, was a very wealthy man. He contributed his own family tomb, hewn out of a rock, 
and Jesus was buried in that tomb. The second man from that Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council that opposed the death of Christ was a man named Nicodemus. You might recall Nicodemus from John chapter three. Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds of, of, of expensive ointments with which to embalm the body of Christ. That's a lot of weight. It's also an equivalent of today's dollars, about $250,000 worth of aloe and ointment. And they embalm Jesus, and they place him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and the Messiah is dead. This is what John wants us to know from John 18 and 19. That is what happened. So here's my second question. What does it mean? What does it mean? You see, as the disciples began to look back on these events, in light of the resurrection, in light of the empty tomb, in light of this growing movement called the way, in light of having had meals with Jesus after he died. You ever had a meal with someone after they're dead? Very few of us have. The disciples did. You ever had somebody go, look, put your hand here. Put your hand here. It's me. Where they stab me, put your hand there, it's me. And they begin to ask this question, what does it mean? And, and as the disciples begin to talk about that and, and they begin to learn from Jesus in those days following the resurrection prior to the ascension, they begin to answer this question, what does it mean? And I'm so grateful to God that one of them, many of them was smart enough to write it down. We call that the New Testament. What does it mean? So Paul in Romans chapter six, verse 10 would say, the death he died, he died to sin. In other words, here's what's happening. Jesus pronounced, it is finished, and then rendered up his spirit. It's odd to me because I would have suspected that Jesus would have died, been in the tomb, resurrected on the Sunday, and people are gathered and the women are going, I thought you were the gardener. And he goes, no, it's me. <laughs> I'm alive. To Tetelestai. It's finished. See, if that were me, that's when I would have said it, right? That's the right time to say it. But what Jesus says is to tell us die, and then he dies. And Paul, after the fact, would say the death he died, he died to sin. In other words, Jesus on the cross took the penalty and punishment that was meant for you and for me. And with him in that grave was buried death and sin and separation from God loneliness and brokenness and all the filth and garbage that we experience in the world. And now Jesus has left the tomb and all that stuff is still there. What Paul is telling us in Romans chapter six, verse 10 is that death has died in the death of Christ. If you are a note taker, write that down because that's the only thing I want you to know today. That death has died in the death of Christ you may have dreamed of having children and maybe that dream has died 
but death is dead in the death of Christ. You may have dreamed of getting married and you never did. That dream is dead. But death has died in the death of Christ. You may have lost a spouse to divorce, uh, to, to Alzheimer's. You may have lost a, a spouse to mental illness. You may have lost friends. And you look back on the course of your life and you say, I have experienced so many losses and so many deaths. But death has died in the death of Christ, still buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You may think that your sin is too overwhelming and too much to forgive, but God sent his one and only son who lived the perfect life you were meant to live and died the death you were meant to die so that your sin is now dead, so that your physical death is now dead, so that your spiritual death is now dead, and you are a new creation alive to Christ. Death has died in the death of Christ. This became so critically important to me uh, so, so often in my life it has, but even on Friday, I spoke on the phone with my Aunt Cynthia. This is her. She is a very beautiful woman. She is extraordinarily intelligent. She served as a reverend in a Methodist church for an extended period of time. She's recognized by her family, friends, and community as an extraordinary human being. She's been given awards in the city that she lives in because of her reconciling work with Muslims and the surrounding community. If you know anything about race relations in the US, that's not an easy work. I was on the phone with my Aunt Cynthia, she's a poet on Friday. She shared with me a number of poems that she's written. One of them is called Jesus is Laid in the Tomb. Shroud of Futile Subversion. Motionless perfume dissipated into sand and stone. All that remains, dry heaves and eyes void of fluid. Seductively the tomb wooed observers, even you today, even you, come to me, come to me, lay your weary head on the sweet pillow of death. It is done and it is finished. Foot and dreams dashed against wood, sealed by rock that does not cry out, no angel in sight. See, this is the invitation of Jesus to come to me and lay your head on the sweet pillow of death. Why? Because in his death, death died. I did not call my Aunt Cynthia on Friday so she could read me a poem. I called her so we could plan our last meeting together. You see, because she was given six months about a couple, about 45 days ago. So I'll travel to Tucson where she lives at the end of April and see her for the very last time this side of glory. But her death is even dead. Even her death is dead. Or her coming death is dead in the death of Christ. So is yours. Every death you ever experienced. So we know what happened. And we know why. Let's talk really quickly about when. And then we'll be done. 
What John tells us is that it was the day of preparation. It was the day of preparation when Jesus was crucified. That is to say it was the day before Sabbath because Friday is the day that they prepare for the Sabbath. Not the day of preparation for Passover, I'll tell you why in a minute, but the day of preparation for the Sabbath. The Sabbath being on a Saturday means that Jesus was crucified on a Friday, hence the reason we celebrate, remember, and reflect on Good Friday. But not only do we know the day of the week that he was crucified on, but we can actually narrow down the years and to a pretty reliable window. Here's how we do that. Luke tells us that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is John the Baptist. Recall? Everybody remember? John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. So he began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was you know, given Roman emperorship in August of 14 AD, and then he assumed uh, the throne on January 1st, uh, 2019. That's not true. Uh, 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 Assumed the throne January 1st uh, in uh, in 15 AD. So the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar is either late 28 AD or early 29 AD. So that's when John the Baptist began his ministry, right around 28, 29 AD. Not sure if they're counting 15 years from August of 14 AD or 15 years from January 1 because they counted different ways back then, but it's right around there. And because Jesus began his ministry after John the Baptist paved the way for him, that means we can know that Jesus began his ministry in late AD 28 or the latest possible he would have begun his ministry would have been A.D. 30. That's the latest possible because you have to have 15 years from when Tiberius Caesar took the throne for John the Baptist to begin his ministry. John the Baptist do his ministry and usher in the kingdom of God as Jesus pronounced it. This actually uh, lines up with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. Luke tells us that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. That makes sense given what researchers and historians would say. Jesus was born about 5 or 6 AD, so if he began his ministry in about 28 AD, that makes sense. He was about 30 years old. Once again, John tells us that it was the day of preparation, not the day of preparation for the Passover. Mark tells us that the day of preparation is the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. In other words, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath was a what? Friday. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He was crucified on the day of preparation. Sabbath is Saturday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. The day before, on that Thursday, Jesus sent Peter and John and said, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Uh, The interesting part about this is that Passover falls on the 15th day of Nisan. This is the Jewish month of Nisan. Always falls on the same day every year, except that the Jewish calendar actually floats, whereas our Gregorian calendar calendar does not, at least not in the same way. So Passover does not fall on the same day of the Gregorian calendar every year. It definitely falls on the same day every year in the Jewish calendar, the 15th day of Nisan, but it doesn't necessarily fall on the same day of the Gregorian calendar. So that's why Easter changes every year. It's like, why is Easter March 3rd this year and April 14th, the year before all that stuff, a year later? It's because that Jewish day of Passover, the 15th of Nisan, floats. 
So here's what we know. If Jesus was crucified on a Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath, that means that Passover took place on a Thursday. He was crucified on a Friday. Uh, he celebrated Passover on Thursday. You with me? Is everybody tracking? This is critical now. You ready? Within the window that Jesus would have done his ministry, we have only two options for when Passover fell on a Thursday before the day of preparation on Friday. Only two. The, the years of Jesus' ministry are verified not just of scripture, but external sources as well. It's when Pontius Pilate reigned, it's when Herod reigned, Tiberius Caesar and others. We know that Jesus' ministry fell here. And there were only two times in that window where Passover fell on Thursday. Other times during that window, it fell on a Monday, it fell on a Saturday, it fell other times. But we know it fell on a Thursday, the day before Friday when Jesus was crucified. One option we have is Friday, April 7th, AD 30. But this cannot be the day that Jesus was crucified because John tells us over the course of his ministry that he celebrated at least three, possibly four different Passovers. If he began his ministry in 28 AD, which is the earliest possible Possible date, and he was crucified in 30 AD, that only gives him two years to celebrate three Passovers. And Passover only comes once a year. Do you see how the math doesn't work? The only other option we have is Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. The day before being Thursday, the day of Passover. Not only that, we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus was crucified about the ninth hour. The Jewish day, in that particular time and place, again, began at 6 a.m. So 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3. So here's what we know from history and from the scripture is that Jesus of Nazareth was pierced through the side, blood and water flowed, and he was pronounced dead on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD at 3 p.m. And so on Wednesday, April 3rd, when your phone dings at 3 p.m., you can count back 1,986 years to the very hour when death died in the death of Christ. Pray with me. Oh God, we are humbled and grateful that you paid the penalty for our sins. We are humbled and grateful that your word does not talk about higher levels of spiritual consciousness or knowledge that we might attain, but your word tells us of the moment that you entered into human history in the incarnation and sent your son into the world to live the life we were meant to live and die the death that we were meant to die on April 3rd, Friday, 33 AD at 3 p.m. We sit humbly under the weight of that knowledge and our only response is worship. So now, oh God, in this moment and on Wednesday at three, when about 1,200 people see a notification on their phone, 
Would you remind us, oh God, that this is not a fable or a guess? But this is absolutely historically verifiable that you sent your son into the world and he died the death that we were meant to die on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD at 3 p.m. And because he died that death, our death is dead in the death of Christ. As we sing, God, about that moment when you called him from the tomb, and the promise that you had made just two days before that it was finished, you made good on that promise. Death is defeated, the victory is won. And to Telestai, it is finished. Jesus, indeed, you are our living hope. With that heart of worship, I would invite you to stand as we respond. The only way that I know how. <laughs>